Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire and I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. Welcome back to my co-host, Kendall Moran, who's the student member of the Professional Nursing Committee, although now in fact a newly registered nurse and co-lead of the newly registered nursing network. Hello, Kendall. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me back. Kendall, um, how long do you think you're allowed to be a newly registered nurse? (laughs) Good question. Something I definitely don't have a straight answer for. (laughs) I think it really depends on the individual. Uh, Some people feel safe and confident in their role much sooner than others. And it depends on lots of different things like where you work and how supportive your team is and how comprehensive your preceptorship is and your previous experience and your personality type and lots, lots more. I think I'm probably... I'm coming to the end of what I would consider myself as being newly registered. But the Newly Registered Nurses Network um, states it caters for those in their first 18 months of registration. That's the figure we go for. But we certainly wouldn't uh, turn anyone away. So get in touch if you need support. And Kendall, I know that yesterday you were called into work at, at quite short notice. The RCN reported this week on significant levels of sickness among nurses. Is that something that you're seeing in in practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it feels pretty light on the ground at the moment. And what do you think is behind those those high sickness levels that we're seeing? Well, I think the answer, again, is quite complex. But so we obviously have the COVID-related sickness, but I suspect a lot of the increases is related to the levels of exhaustion in the workforce. And um, staff have been under such pressure for such a long time, and they haven't been able to prioritise their own health. And we know that stress and exhaustion can affect your physical and mental health pretty severely. The numbers are actually really concerning. For example, the NHS in England recorded over 18% more sick days among nurses and health visitors in May 21 than compared to the previous year. And that's 73,000 more sick days. And the LCN's analysis shows that um, staff are more at risk of mental health problems, respiratory problems and migraines than before the pandemic. They are launching a winter wellbeing campaign to encourage staff to prioritise their own physical and mental health. So look out for that. And I think we all need to take special care to look after each other this winter. Mm, I think it's going to be a tough winter, isn't it, really? Mm, yeah. But before we head into the real depths of winter, October is Black History Month. We're going to talk later about why we have Black History Month and why it matters with this week's special guest, Bongi Sabanda. Bongi is the lead educator for advanced practice at Epsom and St Helier University Hospitals Trust. Hello, Bongi, and welcome to Nursing Matters. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kindle. Thank you for having me today. Pleasure to have you. And, And how are you this week? I'm great, thank you. So I'm just uh, starting my leave, so very much uh, starting to re-energise myself. Bongi, we've talked a bit about the impact of the pandemic on nurses' health and well-being. How's it affected your practice? Well, it has really um, had a significant impact. Absolutely, I, I uh, echo some of the things that Kendall has already highlighted. So staff morale, uh, well-being, uh, sickness levels is thin on the ground in terms of um, uh, clinical practice as well. From my perspective, really, as a lead educator, it has been the impact that it has had, obviously, uh, to our staff members who are undertaking uh, MSc advanced practice programs. And as you can imagine, we are more than 20 months now into this pandemic. At the same time, we still have a responsibility to ensure we are producing uh, the workforce that's needed today and tomorrow. And um, as you may recall, pre-pandemic, the World Health Organization estimated a need for 18 million uh, workforce uh, uh, 
internationally. Mm. So it has been my priority as well to ensure that while we are facing the challenges of the pandemic, while there were still issues around how academic progression would continue, and when we have we had most of our staff redeployed, I had to sort of rethink about how we can ensure maintaining quality in education. So we have um, just um, concluded one of the pilots in ensuring we have uh, clinical OSCEs for our first years who missed out on their first year in academia. I know certainly that my academic colleagues worked really hard to try and uh, reorganize OSCEs, but they were not really OSCEs that we will do in real life. So they had to practice on mannequins, they had to examine people virtually, and that really doesn't uh, give us the picture or the right quality of the um, practitioner we need in clinical practice. So that has been uh, had an impact, but as nurses, uh, as always we do, we sort of check these challenges as opportunities and innovate. We'd like to know a bit more about you, Bongi, and about your nursing story. What it was that took you into nursing in the in the first place? Well, I always say that uh, I think nursing chose me. I really wanted to be a nurse and didn't have any alternative. I had people around me, my family, who were doing really other incredible jobs in different industries. But I was very clear I wanted to be a, a nurse, and I think it's down to my personality as well as my character. So nursing really doesn't feel like a job to me. It feels like that's part of me. That was what I was born to do. So I grew up as um, what I was termed as an exceptionally gifted child by my primary school teacher. And uh, the expectations, as you can imagine, was that I'll do something completely different out of this world, be uh, maybe a scientist, rocket scientist. But I was adamant I wanted to be a nurse. So by the age of 10, I was already uh, looking in how I can become a nurse. And um, I am originally from Zimbabwe. So in Zimbabwe, the entry at the time to nursing was that you needed to be uh, 17 and a half years. So when I was given the opportunity to skip grades, so my, my class teacher uh, told me that following your assessment, um, we have made a decision that you can skip the grades and go to two grades higher. I didn't go and tell that to my mom. What I did was I looked at, at what, that in what impact that will have in me getting into nursing. And I realized that means I'll finish high school at 15 then I won't be able to get to nursing. So I came back to my teacher and said, no, I'm not proceeding with that. I'm staying in this class. And I did. So at 17 and a half, I went straight into nursing um, in Zimbabwe. Uh, and I come from a the second city, Bulawayo. So I started my pre nursing in 1998 and qualified in 2001. I worked in mental health for a year. Then ITU, intensive care unit, then any, and did a bit of research as a research nurse in a program that was um, uh, looking at 18 to 30 year olds, focusing on sexual health before moving to the United Kingdom in 2004. That is a great story. I'm, I'm really glad that you said no and you persevered with your schooling and got into nursing. That's great. So you said you came to the UK. Why did you come to the UK? Can you tell us a bit about the similarities and differences you see to the nursing profession um, here um, and in Zimbabwe? 
Yeah, so in the early 2000s, you'll remember that uh, that's when uh, there was more political instability in Zimbabwe. While Zimbabwe has really always had um, great education, really in comparison to many countries uh, in Africa, it was a challenging time. Um, so the UK has, uh, as our colonial masters, had um, we had similar education really uh, in Zimbabwe. So that mapped very well in terms of where I wanted to go, and it w- it was an easy trans- transition for me. I in fact had two options at that time. I had a scholarship, an education scholarship, to the US, and also got a job offer in the UK. So take me a job offer was sort of the right thing to do based on what I needed to do. And I knew there were opportunities in the UK as well to advance, and that hasn't disappointed. Many black nurses who who come to this country, as as you did, Bongi, can experience racism when they come to work here. What has been your own experience? It's great you answer that question, Rachel. It's... um, I haven't had any stories that are not uh, similar to the stories we hear. I have heard my own share as well of that. And certainly I hear from colleagues now and again, and we know from evidence that it always continues to happen. I think for me, what I have uh, always, always uh, ensured happens is that I don't buy in into the negativity that people have. I have so many allies and I have so many people who believe me. So even if I, when I have faced racism, it has always been overthrown by the generosity of so many allies that um, I've, I've been privileged to help in this country. So I'll give you an example. When I... I was already a senior, a senior nurse. I was holding a senior lecturer position. I went to look for a consultant nurse job. That was I, I, less, less than five years ago. So mm. I looked for that job and um, I was invited for the interviews. So as usual for these senior jobs, you then wanted to arrange an informal visit. And I did that. When I, I went into the reception, they didn't expect to see someone like me. So they asked me whether they can help me. And I told them who I was and, and I had an appointment with so-and-so. They seemed a little bit surprised. That was the person uh, being um, uh, looked for for the consultant nurse job. And when I met the person who was going to be my hiring manager, she then said to me, I think you'll have to do a few voluntary shifts here so we can really ensure that you can work at the level of a consultant nurse. So I am absolutely, absolutely clear that this would not have been offered had I been a white senior Mm. nurse working as a senior lecturer and already with eight years of experience as an advanced practitioner. So we do get these uh, batches of racism and certainly it arose significantly following the Brexit. I remember coming off a train and uh, trying to say, excuse me, on the a very day that Brexit ex- uh, results came out and mm. someone saying, oh, what type of an accent is that? This is why we voted to go. Mm. So, but what I've always realized is that it can either be systemic, which means that Organizations have a key to play, but also we have individuals who can be hard to change because racism occurs within a society context and therefore it may be hard to change individuals. So it's up to me to take the, my responsibility of saying, how do I rise above this racism I'm facing? And when you think about how to rise above it, what are your strategies for doing that? 
Oh, I've got, I've got great ones and I share them all the time with my mentors. For me, uh, when I'm going for a job, and certainly that is that was the case when I went for my current job at Epsom in St. Helia, to look at the board level, because with this type level of work that I'm doing, you really require people who believe in you and a board that will look at you and really be clear that you can deliver what needs to be delivered. So the composition of the board was a deal breaker for me to even apply for the job. And even when I applied for the job, the company culture, based on what the, the, the mission was, the vision was critical. I had two job offers at the same time. And at the end of the day, the deciding factor was the composition um, of the board and the, and the mission. And certainly I work for an organization that is clear that has an anti-racist uh, statement out there and uh, is clear to be inclusive to all members of the organization and the communities that we serve. Bongi, you've built your career in advanced nursing practice, not just in this country, but internationally. So tell us first about your work here in the UK. So in the UK here, my main job is um, what I term liberating talent across registered health professions within the NHS. And by this, I, I mean that uh, my current job as a lead educator at Epsom and St. Helia, I oversee the strategy for advanced practice, the policies that we have, education policies that are fit for purpose, and that we empower all our registered health professionals, who include nurses, midwives, allied health professions, pharmacists, and healthcare scientists in really advancing practice, really making them thrive and deliver that high quality patient care that we need towards our outstanding care everyday ethos. And that a larger context outside my own organization, my trust, about really working collaboratively with other key stakeholders in advanced practice. This includes Health Education England, where I serve as a, a member of the inclusivity group at national level. So ensuring that our advanced practice are really our advanced practitioners are inclusive of the workforce across the nation and reflective of the professions and all other protected characteristics as well and working with colleagues at national level to do that and within London which is my region I am in the steering group of the advanced practice steering group HEE where I represent ACP leadership at one of our ICS so for the Southwest London ICS so I work at organizational level, at systems level, and I also work regionally and nationally as well. I know that you have a particular interest in multi-professional learning when it comes to advanced practice. How does that work in practice and how important is it to maintain the core of nursing in advanced nursing practice? That's great, Kendall. Healthcare and health systems are so complex. And I'm sure uh, you and I will agree that there is too complex for one profession to solve the issues and the problems uh, that are there uh, and uh, to, in order to provide that outstanding care that we all aspire for. I spend a significant amount of time here, right, on interprofessional education and multiprofessional education, really ensuring that we are honoring that unique professional uniqueness that um, each member of the team brings to the table. And so we can really serve well. So, in terms of for how it works in practice, it's a Fairly new concept in the UK because um, interprofessional education has been sung more in the academic area. As somebody who's also just qualified recently, you'll know that when probably you were doing your placement, um, there was less of it in 
clinical practice. And I see my role as being to bridge that, to bridge that gap between academic and clinical practice, because that is where we are going to spend our time as professionals. Therefore, we need to embed interprofessional education and interprofessional practice, interprofessional working and collaborative practice within the clinical uh, setting. So how we have done it uh, at Epsom and St. Helia, because this was a really great opportunity for us with such a, a diverse, multi-professional team of advanced practice was to ensure that we incorporate and become a member of the CAPE. CAPE uh, stands for the Center of the Advancement of Interprofessional Education. It is an arm and organization in the UK that helps to advance interprofessional education in all settings. So doing that has been really fundamental for us to progress our agenda in ensuring that we're doing evidence-based approaches into interprofessional learning, that we're engaging everyone who is uh, involved and has a say in advanced practice in the work that we're doing. And Bongi, I know that you have worked not only here in, in the UK and, as you say, at the regional and the national level, but internationally as, as well, and in particular with a, a, a whole range of countries to promote advanced nursing practice in, in sub-Saharan Africa. What's different or what's particularly important about advanced practice in these settings? In Africa, where obviously I come from, advanced practice, the way we we will describe advanced practice is slightly different from how we describe it or how we view it in the UK or in the Western world. But there are more similarities than there are differences. So in terms of some of the work I currently do as an advanced nurse practitioner in clinical practice here in the UK, if I were to go to Zimbabwe and classify some of the things that they fall under advanced practice, they will just be more concerned because they fall under pre-reg nursing there just Mm -hmm. because of the lack of of uh, doctors just because of the uh, the way primary care systems work. So nurses are already prescribing before they move to master's level. That's preparation that's included within pre-registration. And um, I, I, the way we, we have worked in the past uh, five years or so with the sub-Saharan uh, region, in particular with the Anglophone project, which was facilitated by many high-level stakeholders, including the ICN, International Council of Nurses, JPAIGO, and the American Association of Nurse Practitioners International Committee, to name but a few. Our aim was really to get advanced practice recognized in the region to get a framework that was clear and a proposal that was clear that embeds ethos of advanced practice and that we have an international level um, type of advanced practice within the, uh, the continent. So as part of that, I led the development of a proposal and uh, co-edited it together with my mentor from JPAICO, Stacey Stender, and we submitted that to the WHO Afro region in October 2018. So that was later incorporated into the ICN guidelines in 2020. And uh, it has been taken up by uh, the ICN Academy Advanced Practice Network uh, to help facilitate it further and really implement that in reality with, the, with countries. Um, I wonder if you ever sleep. <laughs> so many things. <laughs> That's great. So you mentioned the ICN, the International Council of Nurses. The RCN is in the process of rejoining the ICN, which is great. Uh, do you welcome that decision? 
Oh, absolutely. We have been loping behind the scenes for that one. And really, I would say I was heartbroken to learn. I didn't actually know, although I have been an, an active member of the um, RCN since I started working here in the UK. And I didn't know we had exited until I read it somehow, somewhere that we're no longer part of the ICN, which was heartbreaking because knowing what the ICN work it does really and how important that is that health policy piece of work and that advocacy and voice is for each nation it leaves us quite distraught i absolutely welcome the news i was thrilled i probably was one of the first people to tweet about it when i got to find out on tweets <laughs> that we're rejoining so yes it's absolutely well welcome news a bit too late for the advanced practice work but i think we can still catch up Bungi, do you think if the RCN had still been part of the ICN at, at the time that those um, advanced practice guidelines were published last year, do you think they'd have looked any different? Oh, absolutely, with no shadow of doubt on that. As you will note, I uh, did a preliminary review on that together with other um, uh, academics, so some of my um, role models, yes, Katrina McLean. But that was me wearing my academic hat. We were invited to, on that preliminary review based on our academic hat and our advanced practice leadership work. Mm. So preliminary work really uh, was looking at uh, the evidence and progressing it from that standpoint. But the final decisions on the, when, when a policy progresses, as you'll know, is with the members. So the members are the NNAs and uh, RCN was not there. So which meant that we had uh, po- a policy, a guideline that came out, but didn't have input from the RCN. And that's so much reflective of the, if you think about the CNS and you look at the at the guideline, how it has um, put the CNS uh, on that, it has a Northern American uh, test of how a CNS is, but certainly not uh, the CNS, the clinical nurse specialist we know from a UK perspective. As an advanced practice nurse myself, and having qualified in, as an advanced nurse practitioner, both in emergency and primary care, my role is very Blurry, my clinical roles have always been blurry, whether they are CNS or whether they are ANPs. So in the UK context, it is there isn't that black and white to say this is a CNS, this is an advanced nurse practitioner, but rather we have an advanced uh, nursing level practice, which I think the RCN got it right on its uh, credentialing. So if we had an RCN voice on there, I am absolutely 100% that would have had our CNS being fairly reflected in that in, in, the, in that guideline. Titles can be so confusing, can't they, where the key thing is really looking at the level of practice at which nurses are, are working, whether that's in, as you say, a clinical nurse specialist role, an advanced nurse practitioner role, being really clear about the, the level of practice. Bongi, October, as we've said, is Black History Month. Why do you think Black History Month matters to, to nurses and to nursing? Black history, given how it it came about, it's so critical in nursing. If we look at nursing today, it is not reflective at high level. It is not reflective, really, Mm. of the workforce that we have. So this is an opportunity. Black Month history is an opportunity for us to highlight those nurses, to showcase those nurses who have um, gone and done work in nursing, who have demonstrated uh, leadership, who have demonstrated a really resilience within the nursing profession and really highlight their work and honour it during this period. And also to give hope to the coming future that they are going to be recognised, that they are going to be facilitated to lead and to advance their practice. 
And who would be your own uh, particular historical icon that you'd like to highlight? Oh my goodness, I've got I've got so many. I really have so many. But Mary Sickle stands out for me in that at times I find my work very similar to what Mary Sickle had to go through. At times I've got to find the front doors get closed on me, so I've got to find side doors and still do what needs to be done in order to provide services. And how will you be marking Black History Month this year? So this month, I am, uh, in fact, actually on leave, on sabbatical leave for quite some time. And uh, I will be going to the U.S. for a bit to mark with my colleagues in Boston, Massachusetts, and focusing on informatics in advanced practice. So we'll be celebrating that with our allies as well. I've got so many allies across the world, especially in the U.S. So we'll be celebrating together with our allies and all with the Black nurses and Black leaders in the U.S. Uh, to mark this this episode. Great. Bongi, if it's sort of thinking while you said it, it, it's so important for that Black History Month, we focus on, on those experiences. How, how can we use those to really, for the wider nursing community, perhaps, to understand those experiences of structural racism and, and begin to do something about it? Sure. Um, there are always difficult conversations to have, but I think following what has happened with COVID and all the things we have seen happening following George Floyd over the last year or so, it has made these conversations much more comfortable than they previously have been. So it is about having those conversations and being open to learn. Sometimes um, people do things unknowingly and they don't even realize the impact that is happening to them. So it's about challenging issues as we see them and um, having allies who also challenge these issues but organizations must take responsibility of really stamping on uh, racism and um, uh, ensuring that they are anti-racist organization that they are inclusive in every uh, step of uh, whatever their organizations uh, ethos are and whatever they are doing and it shouldn't be a tick box exercise there should be some metrics uh, aligned to this to really for them people to demonstrate, such as the rest, really demonstrate that they are targeting racism within an organisational level. And you talked about having allies, and I think that sort of concept of allyship is one that's gained more ground, I think, perhaps particularly after Black Lives Matter. What would you see as the role of an, an ally? How, how would you describe that? An ally not only gives you the opportunity to drive from a, a blackness perspective for me, an ally is not somebody who will um, speak for me, but who will actually make sure that I speak. So um, I know certainly for, uh, without a shadow of doubt, that I've got so many allies who have uh, spoken, who have said my name when I wasn't there in those boardrooms that they have access to. Although they wouldn't say it to me, but the fact that I get people reaching me, reaching out for me, it means that somebody else has mentioned my name. So it is about really them, um, the allies, seeing the talent that is available across all all society across the communities regardless of what color what gender um, that person is what ethnicity and um, uh, being inclusive so I think that's the the most important uh, job of an ally to ensure they are inclusive and to ensure that if you are there they are not um, speaking for you but they are ensuring that you are given a chance to speak for yourself and what can and, and should the Royal College of Nursing be doing in this space, do you think? I think it's to take 
a lead really in this because uh, the college is very well placed to be uh, putting policies and, and, and clear policies on this. So to have really a strategic document that clearly outlines the, um, the position of the uh, college when it comes to inclusivity, to racism. I know there has been some work that's done, but there's still more that can be done to really reinforce this. Yeah, I think that we have still got a lot of work to do, as you as you say. I, I would want to just sort of alert listeners to a series of podcasts that are hosted on the website called Nursing Whilst Black. They have some great, you know, again, personal stories and important reflections on people's um, experience of the profession. And in fact, at, at the moment, there are also on the website a whole range of virtual events coming from all parts of the country and hearing from our very diverse community during the course of of October to to really celebrate Black History Month. Bongi, we could talk for much longer, but we're coming towards the end of the podcast. We'll be back in two weeks and we'd love to know what our listeners would like us to talk about. So tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing by tweeting us at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters, and we'll do our best to cover them in future episodes. But for this week, thanks to our special guest, Bongi Sabanda. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Kindle, for having me today. And thank you to my co-host, Kendall Moran. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, Bongi, for all your work. And remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.